What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sundays. I'm your host, Corey Sylvester Murray. This is a show about generational wealth, about business, about finance. But before we get into that, my man Eric, what's our Black History Spotlight? Uh, today's pioneer on Black History, I want to recognize um, Constance Baker Motley, who was the first Black to serve as a federal judge. Um, she was actually a civil rights lawyer who represented Dr. Martin Luther King several times, and which led to a benchmark cases that integrated schools like the University of Mississippi. Now, she was also the first Black woman to argue before the Supreme Court and she was also first to be elected as a New York State Senator, as well as being the first black female federal judge. And again, her name is Constance Baker Motley. And that would do it for today's Black History Spotlight. Thank you, Eric, for that spotlight. This is Black Men's Sundays. We're talking about generational wealth. But at the same time, a lot of brothers out here don't file their taxes. Their tax returns aren't what they expected. And that's why we have our resident financial advisor, Nelson Simmons, on the line. Now, listen, fellas, Nelson Simmons is a financial advisor. He is not an accountant. So, Nelson, if at any moment I ask you a question that is an accountant question, just refer me to them only because... You know, a lot of us want to know we have questions out there. But like I said, it's Nelson Simmons. We're going to have him on every quarter. He blessed us. Our New Year's Eve show did a lot, a lot of followers. Still haven't done those numbers since. So, Nelson, welcome to the show, man. Let's go and get this thing started. Glad to be here. So hopefully I can, you know, know, relinquish some information that uh, can be helpful and valuable to the podcast and the listeners today. Traditional IRAs. Um, the reason yes. why I bring that up is uh, myself, a few other brothers out there uh, filed taxes and their tax returns aren't what they're used to getting. They're used to getting, you know, brothers I'm talking to are used to getting between six, 7,000. Now we're not talking about brothers who are kids. We're talking about a single brother that's married. They're used to getting seven, 8,000. Now they're, you know, three, 4,000 and they're joining higher tax brackets. So a lot of brothers um, have contacted me and they said, listen, I would love for you to get a financial advisor on here. So I said, okay, we already have one on deck, our resident financial advisor, Nelson Simmons. So let's attack that. The reason why I'm bringing up the uh, traditional IRA, because in my situation, I was told that a traditional IRA will help boost my income tax return a little bit. So what I wanna start with that, talk about traditional IRA and talk about if there's any other programs, if there's a trust or there's other funds that we can contribute to throughout the year that'll help boost the um, income tax returns. Um, from the income tax side, I, I don't necessarily want to, to get off into the income tax side. I want to do, do talk about uh, the traditional IRA uh, versus the, you know, the Roth IRA. Okay. So with the traditional IRA um, and the Roth IRA, the um, contribution uh, max for someone that's under the age of 50 is $6,000, right? 7,000 if you're 50 and over. Uh, that's both for the traditional IRA and the Roth IRA, right? So with the earnings, both are tax deferred, meaning that uh, for the traditional IRA, you know, you're saying, hey, IRS, you know, we're going to kind of delay uh, paying uh, our portion of taxes uh, into retirement, right? And then you can take uh, deductions 
Um, I'm not going to get off into, you know, what deductions you can take on an annualized basis for contributing to a traditional IRA, right? And so on the Roth side of things, when we talk about the tax deferment, we're talking about um, anything, well, it's, it's tax deferred, but it's you, you, you contribute with after-tax dollars. You can do the same thing with the traditional, but you're, you're looking at after-tax dollars, right? And it kind of acts like a savings account uh, for the most part with which you can uh, uh, take out anything that you put into it, right? Because it's already been taxed, right? And so the account grows, the growth portion grows tax-deferred I guess this, this is what I'm trying to say, tax deferred until retirement and at retirement, right? Since that money, as long as you have that, that account, we're talking about the Roth side, as long as it's in there, you know, and you're not taking it out uh, before 59 and a half and the, the, the account is seasoned, like I'm seasoning, what I mean by season, five years, all that growth you can take out in uh, retirement uh, tax-free. Let's talk about the distributions. Distributions means you're going to be required to take uh, minimum distributions at some point in time, right? Uncle Sam comes on his money. On the uh, traditional IRA, we're talking about um, a minimum distribution at age 72. The beauty of a Roth, there is no distribution, right? You can, you can, you don't have to take out anything. You're not forced to take out anything at any age, right? Uh, and so 100% uh, of the earned income upon, uh, uh, yeah, so in saying that, let's talk about, you know, theory. The theory is in retirement, you know, I'm going to uh, be at a lower tax bracket, right? So I don't mind getting taxed. But if you look at history, um, the tax brackets are, believe it or not, lower than they have previously been, right? There was like movie stars, I know, for instance, like uh, Ronald Reagan that would, you know, work half of the year and then not work to kind of avoid and massage some of the, the, the tax issues uh, that he was having uh, because he was making so much money and the tax brackets were higher, right? So we, we, we say, hey, you know, we're, 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 we're banking on it, the tax brackets being lower in retirement, but I mean, how are we going to pay for all this stimulus, stimulus stuff, right? So we, we never know where the tax rates are going to go. So it's advantageous if we can contribute to a Roth to contribute to a Roth and usually we, you know, we're, we're in the lower tax brackets and it makes sense when, you know, we're first starting off in our careers and everything like that, right? So there are income limits uh, to what you, how much you go or to how you can contribute to a Roth IRA. So the Roth IRA income limit for 2022, uh, this is based on a uh, modified adjusted gross uh, income, uh, 144 for those who are single, filers and um, the cutoff is 214 for married filing jointly, right? So you, you, you can contribute up until the point that you make that amount of money, uh, if that makes sense. So let's also take it from a standpoint of strategy, right? So the reason why you would wanna to contribute to a Roth if you can is that again, the money is, uh, comes out tax-free. It's like, like a savings account that you, you, you utilize over time to grow uh, your money exponentially uh, with compounding interest, you know, because you, you can invest in stocks, mutual funds, ETFs, and things of that nature. So, when, so say for instance, all your money is in an account that, like a, a, a traditional or a 401k that has not been taxed, 
when you get into uh, uh, retirement, your basic income need may be 50,000, but you see what I'm saying? That's, you, you have to take out significantly more money to truly get 50,000. It's kind of like you working now. You, if you have a salary of 50,000, you don't bring home 50,000, right? You bring home 50,000 less you know, taxes, right? So, but your need may truly be 50,000. So you can play with the traditional, I mean, excuse me, the, the, the Roth IRA and take money out of it and then take some money from other sources to kind of reduce your, your, your liability in uh, retirement because, you know, social security and things of that nature uh, and pensions are taxed if you're lucky to have one. So I don't know if I answered your question in a roundabout way. I just wanted to get the information out on the difference between the traditional IRA and the Roth IRA. I was advised that a traditional IRA would help give me a little more tax return back. So for the brothers in the higher income brackets, um, speak on the traditional IRA on that. And then if there's other programs or that they can get involved with that can just help increase their tax return. Yeah. So there, there are some, uh, some of the contributions on a traditional IRA are tax deductible in the, in, in the year, right? So I would say get with your tax accountant to talk about those things. I'm not going to, to speak on those things. There's a, there's a, a, a minimum amount that can be, you know, that can, it's tax deductible. And it's also depending on what you have going on within your 401k and other uh, retirement uh, vehicles, right? So um, you, I guess my advice would be to get with your financial advisor uh, and put them, put them on the phone with your tax accountant and you kind of hash out, you know, where you need to park money, right? Because you can have a traditional and a Roth IRA working at the same time. You can just only contribute 6,000 to, to both of them, right? So you can have a traditional that you may can put, I don't know, 3,000, don't, don't quote me on this, and then 3,000 in the Roth, right? But in total, it can't be more than 6,000 on any given year. And let's just talk about that financial advisor accountant relationship. Like I said, we've already talked about why as a black man, we need an accountant. You can check that episode out. We've already talked about why you need a financial advisor. Those episodes are already out. Like I said, we're not going back into that. You can just hit play on those and get that nourishment. But um, let's continue. So what's the importance of, okay, I have a financial advisor, I have an accountant, but they don't really have a relationship with each other. How important is engaging those two in increasing your generational wealth? Well, as you, you're, you're, you, you increase your wealth, you, you, you know, uh, all of us want to be wealthy. Uh, both of them need to be talking, right? Because nobody wants to step over bounds and create a situation that is not advantageous for the client, right? The, the goal is to do what's best for the, the client when we're looking at the whole umbrella of that person, right? You know, uh, helping them build wealth and financial planning. And then from a tax perspective, ma making sure that they're, they're straight and they're not, uh, they're paying as, the least amount of tax possible. That's 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 why you would want them to talk. They should talk. I got one quick question though. So how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good, man. Good to hear your voice, man. Hopefully I can answer it. Yeah, real quick. So I'm looking at my uh, my step my father, he's a retiree from shipyard and uh you know he's got a substantial amount of money in his 401k. Mm -hmm. Uh it was all pre-tax dollars, right? Yep. So he's looking to buy uh, his first home, you know, generational. Uh, wealth building, right? Okay. So you want to get some money out, and I'm like, 
you know, damn, they taxing the hell out of him, right? It's like twenty percent. I'm assuming he's. Huh? I'm assuming he's uh, he's 50, uh, younger than fifty nine and a half. No, he's sixty three, right? So okay. they were telling me because it was pre tax dollars. Uh, it's gonna tw- it's gonna be twenty percent federal, whatever the tax rate is for state. That is what it is. But you know, I had to understand the difference between ta- between taxes and tax penalty. So if he was below fifty nine and a half, they would hit him with another ten percent, right? Right, right. Yeah. So since he's over the, uh, the age of fifty nine and a half, he shouldn't he should have avoided that penalty, that ten percent penalty for. Uh, for you know, taking a distribution or withdrawing from his his retirement account. This is kind of just like a normal withdrawal, right? I mean, you're going to pay the taxes at whatever uh, whatever your income t- uh, tax bracket is. So he avoided that ten percent because he was over fifty nine. Yeah, he avoided. Yeah, yeah, he should have. I'm talking about the taxes. You still owe taxes, right? Because right. it's money that had been deferred, right? So it wouldn't have mattered. He's going to have to pay tax. Is not not the penalty, but taxes. Right. Um, that is right. Yeah. So I guess my question is, uh, as a young, younger person, uh, you know, putting money into a TSP in my case, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think you already said to put it in the Roth funds instead of uh, traditional uh, because it's already, you know, you're already taking the taxes out of it. But just anything else um, from a tax advantage standpoint, when you put money well, in. Well, then see, you can contribute to a Roth, right? Uh, like a, four, a TSP is kind of operates like a, a 401k and th- those work a little bit different. There is no income restrictions on those. It's just the uh, contribution limits. So I think the contribution limit, don't quote me on this, is similar to, I mean, look it up, it's similar to the um, the, 40, the regular 401k and that's 20,500 for anyone that's uh, below 50. So you could do a combination of the two, Okay. Um, but I would definitely, you know, get within the financial advisor uh, for your unique situation to see how much would I need to contribute to a Roth, uh, you know, the Roth version of my TSP versus the uh, regular version of the TSP, right? Because the the rules and restrictions on the 401k side of our, the uh, employer-sponsored plan or the federal employer-sponsored plan is different than the rules when we're talking about uh, the IRAs individual retirement accounts. Okay, thanks for that. How early can you actually, I guess, start a, 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 a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, just an IRA in general? You have to have the income. So you, you have, have to have ordinary income. So whenever the individual starts working, whether it be 14, 16, they can contribute, right? I've set up uh, uh, several uh, custodial accounts, mm-hmm. right? And so, and then you can contribute, a parent can contribute up to the the contribution that the the child may, made or their earned income. So as soon as possible is when you need to get started on this stuff. Got you. Got All right. You. So yeah. Appreciate that. Have that, to have earned income. Yeah. To to contribute to a a Roth. I mean, excuse me, a IRA. Yeah, it's me again, Nelson. So you probably yeah. touched on this already, but uh, what's a great option for a young person to contribute to their retirement besides a traditional or a Roth IRA? Any other options? To contribute to their, uh, they can do um, uh, a Coverdale. They can do uh, UTMA or UGMA, which are kind of trust accounts. They all have their um, advantages uh, with the, the the trust accounts. They, one of the cons with them is that they, um, when you're applying for 
uh, FAFSA or you're applying for financial aid, those assets are seen um, as assets of the child versus if you had a 529B, and I know I'm just kind of rambling here, but you know, you asked me about the various accounts, uh, 529B, um, the, the assets are still in the custody of the, the parents. So they don't count against any kind of or penalize the kid uh, for uh, applying for financial aid. Now, one of the things with the, the accounts that you can set up for, uh, you know, the trust accounts that you can set up for the UGMA or UTMA, uh accounts that you can set up for the kid is that they, um, they at the age of majority, you have to turn the, you, you legally, you're just a custodian, right? So you, you legally have to turn it over to them at age 18 or 21, depending on what state you, you live in, right? And so if you have a kid that's irresponsible, you just hand it them, you see what I'm saying? Maybe a large sum of money that they may not be able to manage. Right. So those are the options if someone wanted to start saving as a child uh, outside of, outside of, you know, the I I IRA, right? So Again, the Coverdale is another version of a uh, account that you use for tuition and schooling. Um, a UGMA or an UTMA um, trust account is, 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 you can use that for anything for whether it be a house, uh, a down payment for a house, car, whatever you, uh, whatever, the, whatever the child needs in life, you can use it for, right? It doesn't just have to be uh, for schooling. Okay, is that spelled U-T-M-A? UGMA is U-G-M-A. And then UTMA is U-T-M-A. Okay. Yeah. Appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. A lot of brothers um, want to set up traditionals. They want to set up Roth IRAs, but they don't feel confident utilizing companies that offer the services because a lot of them say, listen, that sounds great. But the person that's selling it to me is basically taking my money. He's not helping me create generational wealth. He's basically putting money aside and taking mine out. So I just want to have you touch on that. Taking money out. Well, you, you got to think about it, you know, when you're setting up these accounts. And uh, first, I want to touch on it, it, it varies on how much the, the initial investment can be. Um, some uh, clearinghouses or investment companies say, hey, we'll take uh, investment lump sums as low as 250. Some say $1,000. Some say, we, you know, we're not going to touch an investment 3000 maybe 5000 or more. Right. It just depends on, you know, what uh, investment company that you you go with. Right. And then we have to we, we have to consider, you know, what type of share class are we buying? Right. And so with the share class that I promote or that I'm able to uh, afford my clientele are A shares. Right. Where you're paying an upfront charge on the money uh, right as it goes in. Right. So that's how the advisor gets paid uh, and that's how, um, you know, the, uh, the company, that's how the, you're not paying the advisor per se, like personally, you're giving the money and then the investment house or the investment company is paying the advisor, right? Through the portion of, uh, portion of the, the fee. So you're never really truly paying him is for them to, pro uh, to promote and distribute uh, investment product. Again, guys, when you're, you're talking about on this investment side, there's no, there's no absolutely free checking, right? So you're going to pay somewhere, some fee somewhere. It's not absolutely free uh, uh, checking to say the least, right? So when you're dealing with these 
people that manage your money, there's a lot of research and things of that nature that goes into this, right? They are actually, they're actually flying to these corporations that they're investing in, sitting down with the uh, the heads of these companies, the CEOs and things of that nature, financial, uh, the CFOs, uh, the, the CFOs of the company and going and lulling through their financial statements to see, is this a viable company for me to be investing in? You see what I'm saying? That's access to information that the normal person is just not going to have if you're doing the research on your own, right? You know, even, you know, me being from a financial background, there's just certain things that and tools that I just don't have, right? Because I don't have the dollars behind me. So that's what you're paying for when you hire an advisor who puts you in a product uh, or uh, introduces you to a, uh, a mutual fund or things of that nature. That's what you're paying for. One of the things I want to touch on, Corey, is that we need to be investing uh, every month uh, uh, just an amount, whatever you can afford. I, I would say do it to it hurts. You're going to be the better for it, right? You want to invest as much as possible, as soon as possible, if that makes sense. I just want to throw that in there. That was, you know, bonus information. Hopefully I answered the question. Yeah, no, no, man, you definitely did. It's just, you know, I'm getting a lot of brothers hit me up. Yeah, that sounds cool. But, you know, with uh, certain companies, they feel like the reps are, you know, they feel like they're basically creating a pyramid scheme financially instead of creating them generational wealth. So I just wanted you to touch on that. Right, right. And, and, and I get that. I don't know why they would think it would be a pyramid scheme, right? I mean, if you look at your account and it's growing, what I mean, I mean, I, I don't, I don't understand why you would, you would think that you have access to everything. I, I'm not sure why they would think that it would be a, a, a pyramid scheme. I'm not, I'm not getting that. Well, no, it's just, you know, um, kind of like uh, early 2000s, a lot of people were mm. going around selling prepaid legal. So I feel like this is kind of like the 2020 version of that, where you see a lot of representatives from said companies um, that just, hey, I can offer you this, I can offer you that. And also then, you know, I think it, well, um, it lowers the quality of the company when you have people that have the logo or selling the product and they don't even aren't even accumulating that themselves. You know, it just kind of, I feel like it just kind of puts the industry in a bad light on that perspective. Okay, so uh, brokercheck.com, right? So brokercheck is where you can go and you can see if anybody is legit. So if you just went to brokercheck, put my name in there, you would see my experiences, the license, if I had any kind of disclosures, you know, for any fraudulent activities that I may have done. Uh, if I had swindled people out of their money, if I had um, any bankrupt bankruptcies, you see what I'm saying? You have to list all that stuff. So we're highly regulated in the field, right? Anybody you talk to, you should go to brokercheck.com, plug in their name. If it doesn't pop up with the information that you want or you is, is this not good for you? You see what I'm saying? Like they don't have enough experience or they, you know, they have some um, kind of uh, filing against them if they're bankrupt. Like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want my <laughs> my financial advisor to have went through a bankruptcy, you see what I'm saying? Within the, you know, within a reasonable time, you know, but all that stuff never goes away on there. So it's just there and it's their record. So you can see it, right? And, and we report up through the SEC. We, we, it's a division, it's called FINRA, right? FINRA is the, the um, a subset government division of uh, the SEC that um, basically, holds me accountable, 
as a financial advisor, right? So um, that's the first level of, of care for yourself is to, you know, just do your research on who you're talking to, who's in front of you, who's presenting the information. Hey, real quick, Nelson, is there an equivalent website if you wanted to check an accountant to see if they were a certified PA, a CPA? Yeah, AICPA website. All right, appreciate yeah, that. They're, you know, they're licensed and legit. Okay, thanks. Right. And any member of that is going to be uh, uh, credible. As far as anybody, you know, that there's tax advisors and tax people that may be, you know, certified, but the gold standard uh, in accounting is to, you know, to have that CPA. So if you have, it's, it's good to have a tax preparer, but there may be some kind of tax, like for myself, um, this upcoming year, I have a more complex tax situation and I'm an accountant, right, by, by trade, but I'm not a tax accountant. I'm not in the, the, the rules and regulations all that much. Uh, so I'm going to be hiring me a CPA to handle that, right? Um, you want to make sure that they have that, at least that, that gold standard. And that's just my opinion. Okay, thanks. First off, I want to thank all the Black Men Sunday podcast listeners. We're getting a lot of love out of the Philippines, a lot of love out of India, obviously the U.S., Australia as well. So just want to shout you guys out. Thanks for the love. Thanks for, for the support. Thanks for just um, contacting us. Just want to even be in alliance with what we're doing because we're trying to network. We're trying to reach these feathers out. So we're stretching them all the way across the country, across the globe. So I appreciate all that support. So let's transition to the second half of this show. We want to uh, touch on insurance. Nelson, there's a lot of brothers out here that have businesses, that have businesses that are up and coming. Um, but, you know, when I talk to a lot of them, a lot of them after they listened to uh, last to episodes, two, two episodes ago, they all say, you know what, I'm not sure if, if you Google my business, if I'm, if you'll even get anything. So I just want to have you touch on that and then go into some insurances that, uh, you know, as a business, and then we'll go into as a, you know, personal, but I just want right. you to touch um, on business perspective first. Well, I mean, if they have a partnership or anything, you know, on the, on the, the business side, you know, I don't, really have that expertise, but I know that you can establish like a, a key man policy, right? Every business, if they have partners, if it's a partnership or whatnot, where, you know, you have an operation where if someone died, you know, that person, I may have expressed this on here or something, some other uh, event that I've talked to, but if that person died, you know, they, they hold a dollar value, they're a soul, but, you know, they have a dollar value to that company and they will be royally missed. So that might buy them out of the partnership or, you know, uh, yeah, that, that would buy them out of their, their, their partnership or it would cover the loss uh, to that other partner if that person were um, no longer to cease to exist, right? So it's the key man policy that may need to be established. I think every business should have, even if it's a husband and wife, right? You know, you have your uh, individual policy, you know, uh, you know this ensuring, you, you know, you guys life and, you know, trying to protect your income. But if you have a business together, you definitely want to have that additional layer or that additional uh, policy for uh, your business. Okay, cool. And then um, going to the residential side, um, the non-business side, rather, um, as far as insurance, I mean, a lot of people have insurance on their jobs, but, yep. you know, outside of that, if you can just talk about if yes. we can get additional layers outside okay. of that, just to have so, more. So I've, I've got a whole present, you know, a little presentation or, you know, talk that I want to do today to kind of show you uh, the perils of 
um, the different type, what, what insurance you should have and what insurance you should not have, right? Um, and so what were, you, what were you saying, Corey? You said something about, um, what was that last piece that you said? Because I wanted to speak on that. Can you remember? If not, we can just move Yeah, on. no, I got you. No, basically just the last part is just, you know, the just the other layers. Like if you already have insurance okay, on your, your job, job, but you just want to have some additional layers. So just like we okay. talk about the so, raw, how that's additional, you just right. want some additional layers to okay. add on. So anytime you have a work policy, you got to know that you don't own that policy. Right. And so the, the name of the game for an insurance company is not to pay. Right. So you want to have something outside of um, what they offer at work because there's clauses that are not advantageous for you and I. And some of the policies that I've seen in practice and in passing uh, with uh, other uh, insurance agents is, you know, that they, they, they're having to go to battle with, you know, big corporations and things of that nature is, you know, there, there was an instance, you know, true life instance where somebody actually died uh, on a weekend, right? That, and so they, since they died on the weekend, you know, the, the, and they only had insurance through their company, the insurance through their company didn't want to pay. It was like they weren't at work, right? So that wouldn't have happened if that person had established. Now, they, they ended up paying the claim. Uh, one of our agents helped them out. But if they had had their own, you know, policy, that wouldn't have happened, right? Because it's uniquely yours. It's tailored to fit you. It's not a group policy where you're getting group rates because, you know, and it's driving down the price because, you know, you have people in the risk pool that may be 65, but then you have a ton, a butt ton of people that are 22, right? And so, you know, it just makes the insurance cheaper, right? So always have your policy, a separate policy outside of your work because, you know, what you don't own is not going to be advantageous for you. So you need to own your own stuff. Great explanation. And, you know, a lot of brothers have been hitting me, getting a lot of love from the Dossmans about the multiple properties. Matter of fact, the best man at my wedding, me and him had a conversation. He was inspired by the Dossmans. So yes. I just want to salute you for, you know, setting that connection up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, in our conversation, we kind of had a couple of questions, you know, as far as on the real estate side of things. Um, so the question I have for you, Nelson, is for the brothers who, you know, have, you know, they have a nice setup, wife mm -hmm. makes good money, they're doing well, they have some extra income. A lot of brothers are telling me, listen, I feel like having my money sitting is working against me than for me. So touch on that first. Having the money sitting is working. It's definitely working against you if you have it just sitting, right? Cash, the wrong amount of cash sitting for you is doing nothing but getting eaten up by inflation. So you have to put that money to work. Whether you want to put it to, uh, to work in the markets uh, or in real estate, choose something, choose it all. Do and, like I said, you know, tell my wife, we're going to do and, and, right? We're just going to, we, we're going to have our hands in a myriad of stuff. And, you know, but like I said, you cannot deny, you know, uh, the power of owning, of ownership, right? You know, just think of it from a standpoint, if you're paying rent, rent will go up on you. You have no control um, in most situations, unless you have an adjustable rate on uh, a, a property that you own, and it is fixed for maybe five, 10 years, depending on, you know, the, the uh, loan product you're in. That rate is fixed. So you know that I'm going to pay X amount of dollars, let's say $500 a month for the next 20 to 30 years. You can't say that on something that you don't own, right? And there is, you know, from a business standpoint, sometimes 
you know, these landlords, they have to raise rent, you know, to cover, you know, their own expenses, right? So in, in saying that, you know, um, yeah, don't have cash sitting, put it to use, put it to, uh, put it in real estate, put it in the, the stock market uh, and things of that nature. Now, is there any specific question you had about real estate that you wanted to ask? My second half of that question was, you know, for the brothers that have that additional income that they're saying the money's just sitting is not working for them there after listening to the Dossman episode, they're thinking, you know what? That's not a bad idea. Okay. Leave, okay. you know, buy another property, sit in it for a year, rent it out. So a lot of brothers that have that residual um, to that level are wanting to go that route. So I just wanted you to touch on that. Yeah, yeah. So it's all about strategy, kind of like the Dawson says, you know, that their strategy is to live in a house and then they're moving every single year, right? You can also do the two out of the five years, right? You can sell your your, your main home, move, uh, 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 avoid capital gains, cash out, basically cash out and buy another home, right? For, I've done that strategy before. I have yet to do the um, strategy where they're talking about living a home and then rent the home out. That is a big game, uh, a major play, because what it allows you to do is put the least amount of money down possible, right? So 5% versus uh, 10% on a second home versus uh, 20% on an investment property and things of that nature. So it's just about how you want to position yourself, right? For me, uh, what we did is again, we did the two out of the five years. We sold our primary home. Um, we cashed out. We used uh, some of uh, the, the residuals or the, the capital gain that we got to buy another home, right? We built another home. And then we took as the, uh, and it was just something that just, you know, I don't know if we'll see. It was, it's, it was, it's, it's what they call the, the great wealth transfer, right? What happened right now, what's happening right now in the housing where we have uh, a shortage in, uh, uh, supply, you know, and that creates a situation where it drives the home prices up. So we were able to capitalize off the appreciation in our home. And then we opened up a HELOC, used the HELOC to purchase our second property with a 10% down on our second property. So we put 5% down on this property that we live in, our primary home, we put 10% down on our second property without even touching uh, any of our uh, residual savings. So we just used the equity to purchase a new home, right? To purchase our second home. We didn't use any of our liquid cash to do that. You know, you mentioned HELOC mm -hmm. on a few episodes. So just yeah. for the brothers that, because a few brothers, what's a HELOC? What home is a HELOC? Equity, yeah, home equity line of credit, right? It's kind of like a revolving uh, line of credit or credit card on your home, right? And the beauty of the HELOC versus uh, the cash out refi, which I've done too, um, is you don't reset anything. You don't mess with your primary mortgage, right? It's kind of like a secondary mortgage. And instead of taking a large lump sum, say for instance, with a, a refi cash out, you take out $50,000, right? And you take that $50,000 and you get that, that lump sum, right? But you're responsible for that. All right, so on a HELOC, if I took a $50,000 HELOC um, or put it, place that on my home as a secondary lien on my home, well, what if my financial need is only $25,000? You see what I'm saying? I only have to pull down to $25,000 versus the whole fifty dollars that I would have had to do on a refi cash out strategy. So that's what it is, right? And so with a refi cash out, you're paying principal and interest you know, over the life of the loan. With a HELOC, 
you pay interest as long as you want to. You can always pay down the principal, but you're responsible for um, the only the interest during the drawdown period. Drawdown period meaning that I can take withdrawals or I can utilize my credit limit, right? So when the payback comes or the payment period comes, you pay interest and principal. So it's a more flexible option um, or tool to utilize for you know buying property, uh, fixing up my my home, you know because it's an asset. I wouldn't use any utilize any of this to buy depreciable assets, right? That's cars, that's clothes, that's jewelry, that's vacation. When we are utilizing financial instruments, or what I would like to consider, or you know introduce y'all to, is debt weapons. We're buying other assets, right? We're buying assets. We just continue to buy assets. We're not buying liabilities or depreciable assets like cars. So I would never take a HELOC out on any of my properties, whether it be my second home or my first home, to go buy me a car. I'm not doing that. It doesn't put any money. It doesn't create any positive cash flow for me. And so, okay. you know, with with the Dosmas and things of that nature, they've got positive cash flow of. I don't know. I would say, guess if I had to, $500, $500 plus on each home, right? And then now they have access to liquidity. They can put a HELOC on each home or they can sell a home if they ever got in a bond. You see what I'm saying? And, and, and take all that, the, the equity that had built up in the house and, you know, just have that sitting in cash and put it in the stock market. It gives you options, right? That you wouldn't necessarily have if you didn't have property, right? And most of it is, you know, non-taxable events. Just to clarify, like, so once you start doing that, right, you can, it's like a rolling situation, right? Mm -hmm. You could take a HELOC on every single property. So is that like when people talk about like taking out a second more, a second loan or a mortgage on their home, is that what they're talking about? Is that something different? I mean, no, yeah, you can, you can, yeah, you can take a, uh, a second home loan or you can do a HELOC. It, it acts like a second lien on your home. So you basically put a second lien on your home. So if I were to sell my house, I would have to pay off the mortgage on my house and the HELOC. Okay. So, yeah. but the, the, uh, just to clarify though, so you, if you take, like, I, I think that's what you said you did, like you took a HELOC on, on your my primary uh, residence and yep. they used it and then you used it to buy a secondary, a second property, yes, right? Yes, we did. Mm -hmm. Now you can take another HELOC on that second property if you want to and do it again. Can you not? Yes, you can. Okay. That's what I wanted to clarify. I appreciate that. So mm -hmm. you can do that as many times as you want. Yes, on. as long as the bank bank will allow, there's certain oh, yeah, as long uh, as the regulations and income uh, debt to income ratios and things of that nature. But once you know you rent out your second home or whatever you want to use it for, like we're you know we're doing a short term rental thing, um, you know some of that income starts to to account or account with you know your regular job income, right? As far as your next purchase of your real estate uh, investment or your you know next purchase of real estate rather. Got you, got you. So you have to you have to take those um uh, uh criteria into consideration. It's consideration, yeah. And this is uh Commissioner Scott again. Real quick, Nelson. A lot of people are under your assumption just because they have like you know three hundred thousand dollars of equity in their house that they can use all three hundred thousand. What's the rule for um determining the amount of the amount of that equity you can actually use towards you know purchase? Um, it it just depends on your lending institution. Um, a good rule of thumb is uh. Uh, they may let you, you know, cash out 80%, some maybe 90, 95. It just depends on, I can't really give you a, it, uh, it depends on um, what financial institution 
you go to, right? And so for the trickier things, like for my primary home, I used a, a credit union to finance it. I used a independent uh, mortgage broker uh, for my second property, right? Because, you know, they, they can shop your unique situation around. So that's what I did. So I can't really give you a, you know, a fine definition of, you know, how much they will let you borrow against your home. It's usually, you know, 85% of the, the, the 80% of the equity uh, debt, you know, uh, debt to equity in your home. Or, you know, some may even let you go, I guess, I think to 95, don't quote me on that one. But it's just, you know, depending on the lender. Okay. You know, we're talking about stocks. We talk about group stocks. We talk about individual stocks. You know, there's brothers on both sides of the argument, obviously. Um, you know, we've had that on, we've had a battle on here as well. The crypto miner versus financial advisor. If you haven't checked that out, check it out. But I just want to, you know, two more questions, but I just want to talk about the group stock game versus the individual stocks. And, you know, from your perspective as a financial advisor, what gains quicker generationally? It comes down to investor behavior with single stocks and playing in your brokerage accounts and things of that nature, you're, you're selling and buying almost like a trader sometimes, right? And so when you do that, your, your end result is if you just kept it steady and kept investing in the same thing, it's gonna be less. Uh, statistics prove that. So in my opinion, if you have single stocks, you, you, you just plan because it's not, there's no rhyme or reason why you're doing that. You're just saying, hey, I like this. There's no um, filter, right? Well, when the market goes down, what kind of stock should you run to, right? And then if the market is up, what performs well traditionally, right? And so you would, if you do it on a single stock level, you have to play the financial advisor on your own. And most people don't do that. So they're not going to be, okay, so they're not going to have the consumer staples, utility companies, energy companies, uh, financial institutions, and things of that nature when, you know, the markets get bad. Uh, you know, they're, they're just doing what, what's with the latest and greatest thing. But with when you're working with an advisor, the way that they put it together, if they use mutual funds, ETFs, single stocks or things of that nature, there's a rhyme or reason why they're putting things together, especially with me as a financial advisor. You know, I'm bulletproof and I'm creating a strategy that I don't have to come up and apologize for in any type of market, whether it be up or down market. Right. Because, you know, what's hot today will not be hot tomorrow. Right. Uh, so I just am not a fan of the, the single stocks. You know, I do own some in my my uh, brokerage account, but as far as my my retirement accounts, you know, they're tied up into, uh, and I own some, some ETFs too in my brokerage account. But um, as far as my retirement accounts and things of that nature, you know, it's just purely mutual funds because they're already diversified uh, for you, right? Where you don't have to worry about you know, if this company is going to go belly up and even if one company went belly up in, in that portfolio of stocks or that bundle of stocks, I mean, it's not going to wreck your, your whole life savings as if you were investing in a stock. I mean, you know, just as Amazon is high flying today and I don't see it going anywhere, it could be the series of tomorrow. You know, nobody knows, right? So I wouldn't put my eggs in Amazon. I mean, it looks good now. And again, I don't think it would be, it's going anywhere, but I mean, Business is business, right? I mean, who would ever thought Enron and WorldCom? I mean, those are big, hot uh, companies that we did, uh, you know, uh, studies on 
uh, and wrote papers about in, 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 when I was coming through college, right? You know, people had their whole life pensions and things of that nature just in that company stock, right? And so since I've been doing this, you know, I took all my money out of my, you know, uh, you know, because I, I, I do work for a corporation as well. Um, I took my all my money out of um, uh, out of my, my my company stock. I don't have any in it anymore. Gotcha. Only reason I ask that is because there's a lot of brothers out there. Listen, I don't need a financial advisor. I have Robinhood, I have Fidelity, I have mm -hmm. all the other companies that, mm -hmm. you know, why pay a financial advisor when I could just go on there, hop on the latest and greatest, make money off of there versus the group stock? Well, the, the, the you know, governing the emotion, you know, not selling when you're supposed to be buying, uh, not buying when you're supposed to be selling and things of that nature. Uh, uh, a good advisor or advisor comes in or he's worth his weight in gold, you know, in down markets and things of that nature. He governs your emotion. And again, a good advisor is, I mean, we're in the industry. We're constantly talking to good advisors, constantly talking to other advisors, even other advisors at other firms that, you know, uh, that you're not currently working with. We're talking, we're in meetings. What, what strategies work for your clients, right? And so we're learning and we're we're coming back and applying some of those principles to um to uh to our clients portfolios right and you know why you wouldn't go operate on yourself right you go to a doctor you go to a specialist to for them to to operate on you right so why not have someone that's in the field looking over your 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 retirement planning right because Again, you, most people do not want to put in the time that it takes to really research these companies out. It can't just be a hunch. It has to be, okay, there has to be a reason why you, you do things, right? And, you know, most people are just doing it because it's the hot thing, you know, in social media or you, you see what I'm saying? Or I spend my money there. Yeah, but, you know, behind the scenes, you know, how's that company performing, Right from a financial standpoint, and are they coming, you know, is their business such that they're growing in the right direction of the trends that will keep them competitive in, you know, a, uh, a demanding society, right? You're never gonna, you're never gonna know that, right? But by the time the, you know, the, you know, the layman man or the regular man figures it out, it's, it's just kind of too late. And that's just me speaking from, you know, some things I've seen and, you know, um, the accountants can help a corporation burn down a building and hide the matches. That's what they do, right? Well, massage numbers and things of that nature. So you'll never, and sometimes, you know, things are hitting so good that the financial analysts that go in there to, you know, evaluate these companies, you know, and, you know, you hear the quarterly earnings and stuff like that, they can fool them. So, I mean, if they can pull the wool over them, I mean, you see what I'm saying? So you really need somebody that's, you know, walking it out, you know, Corey, you've been, I mean, yeah, Corey, you've been, you know, on some of the calls that I've invited you to where you're talking to real life uh, money managers, real life uh, fund managers, right? That are doing the day-to-day -day, things of that nature. You know, regular people just, just don't have access to that. I feel like I've seen the light. The name of the game is what the Dawson is doing. As far as on a real estate level, I mean, I mean, if you really break real estate down, I mean, you know, we've had a ton of guest speakers on since the new year. But I mean, we can even go back to, to the Tony Bland of why it's not even a good idea to pay your house off. Mm -hmm. Or it's like, okay, well, instead of paying it off, I can rinse it out. And then it pays itself off over time and then you sell mm -hmm. it. So I feel like that's the light. I feel like, you know, 
to achieve generational wealth before 65. Mm -hmm. I feel like black men can get real estate, live in it for a year. I mean, think about it. Brothers rent and moving anyway. When I rent it, I move every other year. Oh, the rent going up how much? Two, three hundred. Oh, no, I'm going to find something else that <laughs> might be a little bit bigger, but I'm paying in the range I want to pay in. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, the stocks is cool and, you know, but I feel like the real generational wave, I mean, brother Dawson said this man plays games all day, he plays video game. He can play 2K all day until one of the tenants call. That's mm -hmm. a nice life. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like, you know, I kind of want your response to that. But really, the main thing is for brothers that have a property that want to basically do what they're doing what advice would you give for them before they step out in there first you, you can't have any fear you know i think that holds our community back a lot fear and then you know just just being ignorant of you know not knowing how right you know and before you know and they've been grinding you know go back to you know caleb and, and sharice dosman um they've been grinding since 2008, remember what was happening in that time frame, recessions, right? So they grew their wealth. And, you know, a lot of wealthy people say most of the money is made in bad times, right? So they took that, they capitalized off of it, and they just kept going. So, um, yeah, I commend them for that. That, you know, that was great. Um, I love their, their, their strategy. It's an awesome strategy. Um, and I think it's replicatable. So I, I encourage anybody on this call to you know, do their own version uh, of that strategy. Like that is a smart strategy. I think you know the wife and I are gonna try to you know pull that one off as well. And if you notice, they didn't buy any like you know rinky dink places. They were moving in to you know new developments, right? You know that's that that was their strategy. We're talking about insurance, you know, um, there's a lot of GoFundMe's. There's a lot of just other ways people gather money for loved ones. What options? What insurance options would you have for the brothers out there, good or bad, that you know you would recommend? Okay, so you know we we talk about wealth building and generational wealth, right? But nobody likes to talk about the less glamorous stuff in in winning with money. Uh, and before you start like trying to even build a nest egg out, you know, it's extremely important to set up a, def a defensive model, right? And that's the insurance. And, I, you know, if, if I had to explain it, I would explain it in, you know, in, in, the, in the terms of uh, sports, right? Uh, good offense, which is, you know, your stocks and, and your mutual funds uh, and all that thing uh, and things of that nature, right? The build wealth is your, you know, is, is, what wins games, right? That's going to win it in the end. But a good defense gives you a fighting chance, right? And that's what insurance does. It gives your family a fighting chance just in case you don't get to build, you know, or accumulate wealth, right? Because, you know, the bills still come. There's going to be income needs, you know, for your wife, you know, your children, you know, you, 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 know, you need some kind of type of income protection, right? So while you are building your wealth, you establish a defensive plan with term insurance pure and it's the pure term insurance is the purest insurance right there's no uh savings component or investment component to uh that particular type of insurance right and i don't believe that one should commingle insurance with saving uh in the wealth accumulation 
effective. You don't need it. There's other avenues that you can utilize other than having cash value type insurance. And when I say cash value type insurance, I'm talking about whole life, universal life, uh, variable policies, and things of that nature. We don't need any of that. The only time that you would need that type of insurance is uh, in the preservation or the distribution phases of, of, of your wealth management, right? And most people really will never need it, right? So the only time that you will need, in my opinion, any type of that variable stuff and you would pay it in full, you, you, you know, you pay a policy in full is when you're trying to avoid state taxes, right? When you're doing state taxes and you're trying to make sure that you're passing off um, your state and you don't want to subject your family to the tax situation when you've accumulated a massive amount of wealth, right? And so federal guidelines said in 2021, you know, federal estate tax generally applied to assets over 11.7 million. 2022, a little over 12 million, right? And anything under that is exempt. So you don't need anything um, that uh, builds up a cash value for you in the form of insurance. Don't need that in the wealth accumulation. Get that uh, term policy, um, get it while you're young. The sooner the better, right? Get as much as you can up front. Now that's not technically correct, but I'm gonna buy as much as I can afford because you have to qualify for insurance, right? You have to qualify for it um, as far as health screening, right? And so um, just put it this way. When I bought my first policy, I was 26. My, I was in the less riskier uh, category pool. I paid a, uh, I got premium uh, insurance, right? Uh, or premium, uh, premium insurance, which means that my payment would be lower. Um, from the age of 26, Today's a 31, I developed high blood pressure. So it puts me in a totally different risk pool. So the best that I can get, if I wanted to get the same policy, it would be more expensive. And the best thing I could rate I could get would be the standard rate, which is more expensive than the, pre uh, the premium rate would be. So you have to qualify for these things. So, um, you know, rule of thumb is you need 10 to 12 times your uh, annual income. Right, that provides a safe cushion for your family, just in case you, as the head of the household, guys, expires. Right before your time, before you had time to accumulate wealth. You know, while you're still needing to rent money because you haven't accumulated any wealth. You know, you're just renting. You know, you're renting basically renting money, right? Just in case something happened. Uh, another way to look at it is dime, right? And that's breaking it down further. I need down further, which is any kind of debt you're in your the income that may be lost, dime, D-I-M, uh, your mortgage, <laughs> and then educational expenses for your, for your child, right? Those are the things that you need to be factoring in when you're thinking about these things, you know, because you represent more than a soul to your family, you know, you represent income. So if you had a $7,000 income um, between the two, you know, your wife and husband, and then, you know, the, the husband dies, you know, because we always die for Three hundred, you know, three thousand five hundred of that is gone. But the mortgage, um, utilities, car note, all that still, you know, still exists. So, you know, you, you you need to find a way to, you know, cover all that. So when you're thinking about your your game plan for building wealth with your family, insurance is the defense that makes sure just in case something were happen, you know, 
your family is well taken care of and they can exist and they can go on and they you know have a pot of money because you weren't able to uh, build that wealth wealth out right and so uh, insurance shouldn't be forever insurance is for a time period right 20 to 30 maybe 35 years out and what ends up happening is your responsibility to begin to diminish decreasing responsibilities you know as you you know you get older you know your house is going to be paid for you know kids if you got any they off and they're on their own and everything else and if you've been saving in the right vehicles your IRAs, your 401k plans and things of that nature, you should become self-insured and you don't need insurance anymore, right? You may need some final expenses insurance, right? You know, just to bury you, but you know, you ain't using, you, you know, insurance to bury you and live off on, right? So that's that's my thing, man. You need you need that insurance. And, and let me, if, if anybody has a, one of those cash value, this is my last point, cash value, Type policies, they go by the name of whole life, universal life, variable policies. Just let me let you know that you're paying for insurance and, and a savings component that you're going to get little to no return on, right? I mean, I don't say little to no return. It depends on what type you have. But say, for instance, you um, you would think that that cash value that you would build up year over year over year if you're putting into it, right? So if I go in, I put $100 uh, in my bank account, uh, over the course of 12 months at the end of the year, if I start in January, you know, I'm gonna have to, uh, you know, what is it? $1,200. Well, it takes two to five years for you to build up any cash value. So if you go in, you look in your account of that cash value component of that insurance policy, you can look in year one, year two, and some policies year three or four, you have nothing built up. And I've sat down with people and I'm like, dude, you could have saved more money in a regular savings account than it's built up in your cash policy over the previous two years. So don't get duped into buying one of those type of policies, right? And another thing is the surrender charges, right? There's surrender charges. Like, say, for instance, I don't even want this policy anymore, right? But you get penalized for it. And that cash component that you have is basically a loan, right? So you, you, you really don't really get the cash value it's a loan that you can take against, you, you, you see what I'm saying, that they'll allow you to utilize while the, the, the policy is active. So I just wanted to put that out there. You know, it's a big deal. I see a lot of brothers. Oh, man, I'm early, I'm mid-20s, man. I'm early 30s, man. I got time. I got time. I don't have to worry about it right now. Just real quick, Nelson, what's, what's your comment to those brothers? <laughs> okay, so uh, you got time to get insurance? No, they're saying they have time. Yeah, they have time. Yeah, they don't need it, right? In middle 20s early to mid thirties. Hey, listen, I worry about that when I get to my forties, I ain't worried about that right now. I got good health. I'm good. Between 26 and 40, what, what if you develop cancer? There's no guarantees in life. What if you develop, now you're uninsured. You see what I'm saying? So you have to always factor in the unknowns. And as you get older, insurance gets expensive. Like I said, I'm almost 40. What I paid at 20, you know, for my policy, and it's a what 30 year policy at 26, I can't pay that no more. And it's a high dollar face amount, right? So it's going to cost me more money, just like anything. We've, we've talked about in, in previous episodes, the cost of waiting. It's going to cost you more money because you're in a different you're in a different risk pool for that insurance company, right? Your probability of dying at 40 is higher than it was at 20-something. So what um, federal um, credit unions, 
I don't know if banks do this too, but I know credit unions. Seems like they give you a free option to get like a free thousand dollars in insurance, and then they give you the option to get more insurance. Okay. Uh, but I'm not sure if people really know about that. At least get the free one thousand uh, dollars. Mm-hmm. You got any comments on that, man? I don't say I don't have any problems with you know. Uh, there's there's people that have multiple uh, policies, right? That go into effect or you know are are paid out upon death. So you you can have multiple. You can have uh, more than one policy. In fact, I'm probably gonna uh, establish uh, another policy out on my life here soon. So um, it's gonna cost more, but I have no qualms with people doing that. Okay, so I was just saying like if anyone's in the federal credit union, check with the credit union. At least check that box. That's all I have to do. Uh, make sure you leave that that quick G. So. Yeah, it's something. All right. Well, hey, with that said, Nelson, as always, I hope you enjoyed the Black Men's Sunday's experience and enjoy the rest of this work week. Peace out. Check it.